out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. You know the deal. It's David Eastall, back again. Just can't keep away, can I? Anyway, look, as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of... The Tubes, because I spoke to the drummer, Prairie Prince, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. A CV, this guy's got such a CV, apart from being in that band, he was also one of the founding members of Journey. Yes, that classic rock band. Also has worked with people like Chris Isaac, Todd Rundgren, Brian Eno, David Byrne, Tom Waits, XTC and also done lots of creative stuff to do with set design, album covers, everything. The quality of the interview is a little bit low on his side, which I now slightly regret, but it's a good interview. Turn up your stereos. I don't know, put your earpiece in. I don't know, just do something. Make notes because I will test you at the end to make sure you are paying attention. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, this is it. Prairie Prince, take it away. Oh, yeah. I probably asked him something about his early years. I always say that, don't I? I'm so predictable. Never mind. That's life. Who cares? But uh, I, I continue to, you know, to stay on the musical path. I'm also an artist, so, so I, I divide my time a lot with uh, painting and set designing and things like that. So it's not, I'm just not completely focused on, on musical um, things, but... But uh, I guess you call myself a, I call myself a Renaissance man of sorts. You know, I, I, I definitely <clears throat> go back and forth between art and music. And, you know, there's lots of similarities in both, of course. And they both inspire each other. But mm. I was mostly inspired, inspired when I was growing up. My mother was an artist, uh, you know, just an amateur artist. My father was uh, not a, a, a professional musician, but he did, he did start uh, his, his life playing drums and dancing and uh, a lot of the the things that I was growing up with were definitely influenced by my parents mm. I had two older sisters I had two older sisters that were uh, in the in the early rock and roll era they were eight and nine years older than me so when I was seven or eight they were you know teenagers listening to Elvis Presley and, and you know getting into the doo-wop music so I heard a lot of that when I was young uh, my dad was really into big band jazz from the 30s, so I listened to a lot of drummers like, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Zine Krupa and uh, Buddy Rich. I mean, all these different different kinds of big jazz drumming drummers. Mm. Uh, so were your parents, did they grow up during the Second World War? Were they based in America or did any... My father was in, my father was in the World War II. He was yeah. in, the, in, the, in the Navy. My mother was, uh, yeah... Uh, they grew. They grew up in World War One, but they, but they when they were kids. But they, uh, yeah. So the, the, the war was definitely a, a big part of their life. Uh, my dad was in the Navy and had two kids uh, before when I when he got back from the from the service. They had me in North Carolina in 1950. So I just turned 70 uh, last month. Right. Happy yeah. birthday. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, it was a little bit of a lackluster, uh, you know, 70th birthday event because of, there was no, <laughs> I couldn't have a party. I, I had all these friends that were going to get together. We were going to play music and uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I, I'm sure it will. Yeah. Anyway, 
So we were I was going to say, were your parents into things like Glenn Miller? Because I remember he came over and he used to be, he used to tour the, the Second World War aerodromes of East Anglia and played in lots of places in this kind of very area like Halesworth and Beckles and um, Dis and places like that. There's famous photographs of him and people like James Stewart, um, the actor, and uh, Clark Gable was in, in the sort of Second World War based in here. So did they come over to England at all? My, my parents. Yeah. Yeah. No, they never came over to England, no. Right. No, they, they were never in England. But they did uh, They did enjoy uh, Glenn Miller and a lot of the big bands. I know they liked, uh, 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 who's Minnie the Moochie? Who's that? You know. Uh, Cap Calloway. Cap Calloway. My dad was a big fan of his. Harry James Orchestra. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, they, they lived through that. But they were in the, in the East Coast, in the South, North Carolina. and. Uh, during that era. Yeah. Yes, because it, interestingly enough, I know that David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead were just a bit older than you, but I mean, whenever they talked about that kind of musical moment that really changed their life, they always said Little Richard was the person that made them think, that's what I want to do. That was their, they also mentioned Elvis Presley and uh, people like that, but it was always Little Richard was both what they said. Did Was that the, the sort of music that you were listening to in the house when you were growing up? Like I said, uh, that was my sisters were into that early rock and roll. So of course, yeah, I listened to Little Richard with them. Elvis, I mean, my my, my sister, she preferred more of the kind of bebop, do do wop kind of uh, things that were coming out, like the Drifters and you know just different kind of soul bands. And uh, Little Richard was definitely a big part of it, I'm sure. And uh, you know, and then it went on the on the other side, like Jerry Lee Lewis and and. Uh, and guys like that so yeah mm. i mean I, I i grew up listening to all that stuff and then when they moved out of my house which it was probably went to college i would they probably was i was probably around uh 11 or 12 61 62 something like that that's when i started to, to kind of take on my own uh musical taste of my own i i, I listened to a lot of <clears throat> surf music you know, I was inspired by uh, The Ventures and Dick Dale. And Dick Dale, I eventually ended up playing on his uh, three of his albums <laughs> much later in his career and my career. But uh, it was an honor to be able to play play drums behind Dick Dale and, and be able to tell him that he inspired me when I was a young drummer. Yes, that must have been amazing. And what were, when the, the British invasion, like the Beatles, Stones, the kinks, I suppose, the animals. Did that all sort of filter into your life as well? Absolutely. I mean, I was listening to surf music, listening to sort of that, those sort of one-hit wonder, you know, uh, flying purple people eater, you gum lost his flavor on the bedroom overnight. Those kind of uh, a novelty songs. And I was really into that kind of stuff. Then I got into the surf music for a bit, but then as soon as the Beatles came out, I went got a beetle wig and my buddy and I put our beetle wigs on and went in our bedroom and played played along to I want to hold your hand and <laughs> listen watched them on Ed Sullivan's show and uh, then the Rolling Stones and then the Kinks and Dave Clark Five and then then they started to get psychedelic and I was got into Cream and Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin you know I mean it just went on and on and on yes so 
So because quite a few people, it's interesting how people's, people can start off being slightly rebellious and then become quite conservative. And I was just reading a book on Elvis Presley by his Vegas period was, you know, he'd obviously had been this kind of person who shocked the country when, with his kind of moves and his lyrics. But then it quickly became this person who represented something that was very conservative and safe by the end of his career and was looked upon especially by the punk community is this real kind of old man, which he, and he wasn't that old when he died either, which was quite surprising. So what did the counterculture and that- Unhealthy, unhealthy, he was unhealthy. unhealthy. He was very unhealthy, I know. Vegas, poor, poor I know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great period, the 70s for, for Elvis. But did the counterculture and that kind of, you know, the, the summer of love in 67, when they had that kind of big event at the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, with people like Tim Leary and, and the Grateful Dead and Allen Ginsberg. Did you get influenced by that kind of movement? Well, I did because I was living in Phoenix and uh, my, I had cousins that lived up in the Bay Area in San Francisco and, uh, and Marin County. So every summer I would come up here and visit them on my summer vacation. And they started turning me on to some of that psychedelic music, the Jefferson Airplane, and, and I actually got to go see um, like Quicksilver Messenger Service and stuff when I came to visit them in summer, probably 65, 66, 67, around there. And I would bring these stories back to my friends, my musician friends and my friends in Phoenix and say, you know, this is a pretty amazing scene that's going on here. I would really love to move there someday. So, sure, I, I you know, I was into, I was into, I mean, I was more more into the psychedelic sound of almost like, LA sound like love, yeah. Arthur Lee love and uh, and mothers of invention. More maybe a little more than the San Francisco sound, but I did I did really enjoy the Jefferson Airplane. Then I ended up later in yeah. my career yeah. playing with the Starship Jefferson Starship. So when you seeing, so when you yeah. started seeing people like John French, who was in Captain Beefheart, did that did those kind of people influence you as well, or, or were you already kind of quite setting your musical or drumming style? Absolutely. The, the, the very first uh, B-Fire record, Save, a, Save His Milk, was uh, on my playlist all the time. And I loved Captain B-Fire more than anything. I mean, the connection between him and Frank Zappa was, you know, so tight. And he just, when I heard Freak Out the first time, it changed my life. Yes. So and, then I started, and then I started hearing uh, Captain B-Fire's music and, and the tubes, my band, the tubes were very, very inspired by, by Beefheart and, and Zappa. Yes. So when did you first get your drum kit? Because obviously most people start with something a bit simpler, but the drum, drum kit is quite different, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I did start with something simple, a pair of bongos. Uh, when I was seven, my uncle got me a pair of Mexican bongos. And uh, that was my first performance live in front of my second grade class, playing the bongos with a, some sort of a, loincloth on and uh, <clears throat> made a hit there I, it just never stopped i started adding to the bongos i got a, a snare drum would play play uh, along with my sister who was playing the piano which just on snare i took a few little classes that you know uh in music class uh learned how to read a little bit of the uh, drum music but uh, and was in the school band in the percussion department, um, yeah. but I never really, really got into it. I just more, I more wanted to just listen to the records, play along. So anyway, I started building my drum set up, you know, when I was about 13. 
Yes. I had a full drum kit by the time I was 14. Yeah. And what? Not us playing along with, uh, with them. Because the one thing I've noticed, I've done a quite a bizarrely quite a lot of um, interviews with drummers, and most of them get quite. Um, they've had, you know, random, you know, experiences. I mean, the click track is something that has has reduced some people twenty years later to, you know, like having flashbacks to that moment where the producer reduces them to kind of a quivering wreck and they just lose their confidence. Did you? How did you cope and learn your skill and and deal with the the world of of kind of the drum uh, the click track and producers? Yeah, well, um, I suppose my, my first sessions were I mean early sessions were with Nicky Hopkins in England, and of course we didn't have any click track or any of that stuff. So, uh, I um, I suppose that yeah, it, it became a thing that when you got hired as a session musician, um, you had to play along with things that might have already been recorded. So that was the click track, uh, or they had a click track along, along with it. And I, I don't really remember exactly how, um, you know, how I, how I evolved into that, that, but I did get pretty good at it, and I am very good at it today. I can listen to a click track and, or, or take it out either way. And uh, I usually ask, whoever's song I'm working for, uh, working on, I say, definitely turn the click track up a lot if somebody else has already played played to it. Because uh, I, I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can hang in real tight with a click track. So it's good, yeah. I, mean, I don't remember the, how I trans, the transition between never even playing with a click track. I don't think any of the early Tubes albums were ever, we ever had click tracks. That kind of was a thing that kind of started in the 80s, I think. Yes, I think yeah. it was. Yeah, everything got too too precise, and I, I don't know. I always felt like it lost a, a little bit of the the energy, you know. Yes, well, yeah, I know. having having the college concentrate on the thing is that rather than listening to people play together, you know. Yeah, I know. It was just it was definitely an eighties thing, it's because before you hit the tubes, you you'd started Journey, hadn't you? I did, yeah. Um, a friend of mine, a uh, guy, his name was Herbie Herbert. He was working with Santana. He had uh, <clears throat> he had been sort of a, a partial manager of the Tubes, and but he was also working with Santana. And he said, "Well, my 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 friends Neil Sean and Greg, Greg Raleigh are quitting Santana and they start a new band. Would you like to be the drummer?" It's not really going to be a band, it's going to be a, a group of session musicians. We're going to call ourselves the Golden Gate Rhythm Section. And I said, wow, sounds interesting. Yeah, sounds good. So I got together with uh, these guys, Ross Dallery included, and a guy named George Tickner from Mickey's Bay, and uh, the other two. And we just started uh, writing songs together, and uh, it was it was pretty amazing. It was something like, very different than I'd ever done before that. Yes. Yeah, so that's... That's what happened there. Journey originally a drummer, and now I hear I hear they got uh, they fired uh, Steve Smith again, and now they've uh, hired uh, Michael Walden, Narda Narda Michael Walden as the, the new drummer for Journey. Yes, and did you did you, did you hear that? Pardon? Did you hear that news? Yes. Yeah. It was a bit like Spinal Tap. <laughs> Everything is like Spinal Tap. Are you kidding? So let me just break there for a second. Spinal Tap 
was completely inspired by our group, the Tubes, okay? We, uh, you know, uh, all those guys, uh, Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams, uh, Michael McKean, all those guys were coming to Tube shows. Actually, Fee Wayville was dating Cindy Williams at the time. And they would come to Tube shows and just check us out, check out Quaalude and all the theatrics and all that kind of stuff. And then that movie came out, and their manager was a guy, Ian Faith, character, rock and roll manager, was a spitting image of our manager, who was Ricky Farr. I don't know if you remember him from the uh, the days that he did the uh, Isle of Wight Festival. That's right. He, he was um, Ricky, yeah, because there was a book that came out, bizarrely, from the other, wait a minute, bizarrely. Um, Oh, God. So I did an interview with this guy called Ray Falk, who was the bloke who was the, him and his brother organized the Isle of Wight, and Ricky was one of the other guys. Oh, right. yeah, 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 he was the promoter, uh, but he actually physically looks exactly like the character that played, you know, Ian Faith, and, 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 you know, carried the cricket bat, had the cricket bat, he would bust up hotel rooms, all that stuff. I mean, it was just amazing. So when we saw that movie, not only was it depressing, depressing as hell, but we also felt, felt I mean, you know, excited that, that someone would think that they could write a whole film. And then, had, as it turned out, it's the classic rock movie of all time, the rockumentary. I mean, it's just Yes, it's all about good timekeeping. Yeah, because Ricky's father, I think, was a boxer, wasn't he? So I think he was a bit of a hard nut. Tommy yes. Yes. So he had did a you... brother. The brother as well, it was also in some, you know, like kind of glam rock bands. Yes. So did you leave the two um, the journey because you wanted to, or were you just asked to leave? I was, I was involved with the tubes. I mean, we, we were we were an art rock band and I enjoyed what we were doing. The departure from playing with these guys in Journey, they were a completely different style of music. And, um, you know, even though I enjoy Santana and I, it just wasn't my thing. Yes. But when, we together, but when we got together and played, it was so powerful. And there was just so much energy and kind of cosmic connection between these guys that I had, you know, I was I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. So, but I just still, you know, I had my band, The Tubes, and these were the guys I grew up with. We had a whole other vision for our style of music. It was obviously more inspired by you know, theatrical rock, David Bowie, you know, things like that, going that direction. These guys were going the direction like, uh, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra meets, uh, you know, uh, instrumental versions of Jeff Beck. I mean, I don't know. They, they were just going off, and, and Santana, they were going off into a, a, just a different realm. Than I was. Yes. And I wanted to head. I wanted to go into more art rock. Yeah. So I stayed with, so I stayed with the two. Yes. And they got Avery Dunbar, another Englishman. What's that? And then they got, they replaced me with Ainsley Dunbar, who was, you know, I was a big fan of his drumming because he had played with, uh, well, he had his own band, The Retaliation, but he also played with uh, David Bowie and, and Frank Zappa. So uh, he was a big, he was an uh, inspiration to me too. So I thought it was a, a great thing that they got that drummer. Yes, yeah. I think I think he played on Bowie's um, 
Young, Ameri young Americans and possibly Ash, um, Scary Monsters, but he was an extraordinary drummer. So look, during the early 70s, we had the glam rock period that had begun, but also in San Francisco, you'd had those kind of cr crazy kind of theatrical bands, uh, theater groups like the Coquettes and those people who were pretty out there. Were, was that kind of theatrical, weird and wonderful world seeping into your band? I mean, we did a movie with the Cockettes. <laughs> it was, uh, we were pretty much naked through about half of the film. It was called, uh, it was called uh, The History of the World is Seen from a Sexual Position, starring the Tubes and the Cockettes. Actually, we were, I don't think we were the Tubes yet. We were the Beans, so we changed our name to the Tubes in about 72. Yes. But, um, <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, theatrics were were something that we we actually started in Phoenix doing some space opera kind of things, uh, even pre Bowie, I think, and um, uh, we would dress up in these kind of make these wild costumes and spray paint our bodies and and just yeah, you know, we we always had a flair for it. We wanted to be you know, in theater, you know and design costumes and sets and all that kind of thing. So yes. It was, it was important to us to do that. Uh, it probably, in the long run, when you look back on it, distracted us from writing hit songs, <laughs> you know, and, make, and making all that money that we were thinking we were going to make as being rock stars. But at the same time, it, it was a, a good feeling for us uh, as artists to be able to inspire people by seeing these big productive shows. Yes, well, absolutely. And um, did you, I mean, because your first album came out in 75, which was kind of at that time on the East Coast and in the UK, there was a lot of the, the early, the, the classic album, isn't it? The classic album. Yeah, yeah. There it is, all there. Beautiful. Look, and there it is. Nice, nice. Is it, is it, is it still in pristine condition? This was my girlfriend at the time, Ree Styles. Nice. Who she was, uh, she sang, um, I don't know if she didn't sing on this record, but she sang on the next one called uh, Don't Touch Me There. <laughs> Which I do believe yeah. you performed on the tube in Newcastle in 19, was it 1983? You appeared with, uh, Paula Yates introduced you to the, to the, the UK nation. Was Jules Holland? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we did. You did. But before that, before 83, so the punk period had started to come up in sort of 75 and then obviously 76, 77. And you had the sort of Ramones and CBGBs. Obviously, when you had started, that wasn't happening. Did, how did you start to think as a band and as a creative kind of unit, how you were going to maneuver the punk period? Well, we, we always kind of considered ourselves punks. I mean, we, we, we were kind of more relating to like the, the New York street kids of, uh, of West Side Story or something like that. Again, more like a theatrical version of a punk than an actual real punk. But we, I mean, you know, growing up in Arizona, it was, it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough there. I mean, I don't know. We, we thought the music was, um, you know, just the more aggressive, the better. Uh, we, we loved aggressive music and we started hearing like, I don't know, Sex Pistols possibly, uh, 
I'm having a little bit of a hard time what exactly triggered us in the very beginning about uh, that kind of stuff. But then we we decided that we would kind of take our own have our own take on it and sort of say like, well, we uh, our mentality was based on revolution, uh, the things that were protests, the things that came out in the '60s, and that's pretty much what's going on. You know, I mean, in England for sure with with uh, the punk rock movement there. The punk rock movement in New York for us was the New York Dolls and the Ramones. I mean, they were they were the ones that shook my brain. I just, I thought that they were unbelievable. And the Dolls was sort of a version of glam meeting punk. <laughs> yes. Uh, we got inspired by the Dolls, David Johansson and, and uh, Johnny Thunders. And that's how we kind of created our, our kind of nutty character, Quaalude. Um, and then when we when we saw uh, when we saw uh, Johnny uh, Johnny Rotten, we we created this character um, Johnny Bugger, and uh, and then the Dirt Boxes. That was like a little takeoff on just the Sex Pistols. But we wrote a song called I Was a Punk Before You Were. So that just kind of tells you that's we all just thought, you know, you guys didn't start it. We started it. <laughs> and that's kind of what, you know, it's like the, it's like the rockabilly and the, the punk and rockabilly, you know, Teddy yes. Boys and all that. Yeah, who started what first? Who knows? But yeah. I know. Then we came to England in like 77 and we played, I don't know, it was like two weeks straight at Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, in 77 and uh, it was pretty cool we saw the stranglers at the roundhouse very impressed by that at that time i'm still friends with Hugh cornwall excellent and uh, I'm, I'm gonna hopefully get him to uh play some guitar on my upcoming recording project we can get to that later yes <laughs> so look because with most bands and i sort of I suppose this is a lot of bands I've done for the, in the 80s. They have a bit of a five-year narrative. And, and in this country, you know, you'd have certain gatekeepers. And like we had the music press, like the NME, Sounds, Melody Bass. And we had a DJ called John Peel, who would play a lot of alternative stuff and was often the most interesting stuff. And so that, that would give people that kind of exposure. But most people, they'd spend 12 months getting, you know, the sound together. Then they get a single, the first album, generally good. Second album, a bit tricky. Third album, not really going very well. And if in, in the UK, any band that ever tours America, it would always destroy them because they'd often say, we went to America, came back and we split up. But in your early years, you know, the band, a bit like David Bowie, you were, you were releasing an album every year when you started to get going and touring. So how did you cope with that kind of, um, kind of workload? Plus, you know, you're obviously quite young and there's a lot of, you know, in those days, it was still, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, wasn't it? A bit more than it is now. So there was a lot more partying going on. I just, it's that's quite... How we, that's, how we, that's how we coped with it. It was sex, <laughs> drugs, lots of sex, lots of drugs. <laughs> and, and lots of late night uh, inspirational art art meetings about what we were going to do next, what kind of songs we were going to try to write about, what kind of subject matter. You know, uh, if we were on the road, we would get into a hotel room and take some some drugs and just wrap it down. Mostly cocaine, I think, was used back then, but uh, we did have some some psychedelics that were involved a bit. But yeah, we would just have these incredible, like, you know, jam meetings about how we could excite ourselves and excite the world with, with 
these new ideas that we were constantly coming up with. Yeah, uh, I still can't believe how fast that all, all that stuff happened. But when you look back at the Beatles, I mean, they did five years. That's about it. And all the records that they came out with, all the songs they did. I mean, it's just when you're young, you're excited about what you're doing. You have somebody backing you uh, with a record company or something like that. Whether you pay them back or not is another story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> which we did, which we didn't. But uh, they they were they were um, they were our patrons, and we we were, you know, were able to express ourselves. Uh, as freely as we as we wanted really i mean it was just amazing yes <laughs> and then on your fourth album remote control which was at the end of the 70s you worked was that the first time you'd worked with todd rungren it was um professionally the first time yeah i had known him before i had done some artwork for him i had painted some costume designs and i knew him for you know five or six years before that he became a tubes fan um and came to a bunch of our shows and just would sit backstage and watch us and stuff. This was before remote control. Uh, we had the job, uh, we, we got hired to play at the Nebworth Festival, I think in 1978, the Tubes. And it was a Frank Zappa, uh, the Tubes, Peter Gabriel, Boomtown Rats, and uh, I think Nick Lowe and the Rockpile. That was the lineup. And Todd and his girlfriend at the time came over, and it was the, the day Keith Moon died. We were rehearsing for the for the festival at Shepperton Studio, and we had uh, we had thought oh, we should do some kind of a tribute to to the Who and to Keith Moon. So Todd goes, "Well, I think we should do a little medley." Because at the time we were already doing uh, Bob O'Reilly shoots. And he goes, well, let's do a medley. We'll do Kids Are All Right, Bob O'Reilly. And so he came out and sang it with us at Networth. So that, that was pretty cool. <laughs> that must have been amazing. That must have been yeah, amazing. Yeah, that was an amazing, amazing time. But but uh, anyway, I can't remember where I was going with that. No, that's fine. Well, it was just your turn for time. Because when I, I did sort of watch the documentary on Twisted Sister, they spent years touring, playing, you know, really big kind of venues and nobody wanted to touch them as a, you know, the record label, which seems amazing because as soon as someone did sign them, you know, they, they were suddenly huge, but they were kind of quite an extraordinary live band. But you, you sort of didn't have any problems getting a record deal, did you? No, I mean, we, we got a record deal in 75, I think a friend, um, this guy named Kip Cohen was a uh, A&R guy, and he came up to San Francisco. And I think we must have done a done one of our pre-record company shows, which was you know, they were pretty exotic at that point. We had five dancing girls with hardly anything on. We had some a crazy space outfits. We had all kinds of stuff, big show going on. And he saw that and he thought, well, this because it was A&M Records, and they had, like, the Carpenters. They did have the police, but that was a little later, I think. Um, you know, Peter Frampton. I mean, Tijuana Brass, Herb Alpert. I don't know how many things they had at that point, but we were definitely the outside band, the, the, the art rock band. Yes. And, can you, and when you, you sort of then toured with Squeeze, featuring the one and only Jules Holland, and... And, um, That's right. 
And and what can what can you remember of that tour? Because you did Europe, you did Japan, you did did um, the USA, which was you know that's pretty heavy. Mostly people come back kind of shattered by them, like the war. Well, we we became really great friends with them and uh, big fans. Uh, they were touring the album Cool for Cats, but uh, I think the the UK Squeeze album was just before that, and you know we I think that was. Probably, um, I think it was. I think they opened for us at Hammersmith during those shows. I'm not sure now the time frame, but we did a pretty extensive tour of the UK and Europe with them opening. And I think that might have been '78, around then, maybe earlier. But uh, and then they we brought into to the United States to continue the tour in the United States. And they didn't last very long for some reason. They, they played three or four shows and our audience here didn't seem to dig what they were doing. And I think there was some, there was some problems. So it never really happened. Uh, it never really happened again though. That was just that one tour. Yes, the U, yeah. U, UK bands just can't do America, I'm afraid. Because one, the other thing I've noticed with with artists who have that you know creative zeitgeist moment in one decade, often struggle in the next. And I remember people, you know, like David Bowie, was amazing in the 70s. Then in the 80s, he did Let's Dance, which wasn't bad. Then his next two albums, not so good. And then you had people, I don't know, like you know Rod Stewart. You had um, Robert Plant. Their their work in the 80s. They, they probably would rather just fast forward that and go to the 90s because it's like, oh, yeah, that's terrible. How did you cope sort of going into the next decade? And you had the, you know, the MTV world. Then you also had that production sound, which in this country we had Trevor Horn, which was this kind of really bombastic kind of stuff that you had Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ABC, you know, yeah, Dire yeah. Straits, Tina, that Tina Turner sound. I mean, did you sort of have to sit down and work out how you're going to navigate the next next kind of musical period yeah well i think that was sort of the beginning of the end for what we were known as in our own minds and and our public we were known as a band that was pretty avant-garde and um you know known for songs like white punks on dope and uh, don't touch me there and things like that not anything like She's a Beauty or Talk to You Later, which became more of our commercial side, brought on by the fact it was the early 80s and we were working with producers that had their system like David Foster. And as opposed to Al Cooper, who had a, a more open mind and was a lot more artistic. Yes. You know, had, had, just had more of what, what we wanted. So there were members in our band. There was a little bit of a dissension in the members of the band at that point. So there was lots of like Michael Cotton and I were sort of went on the art side, art direction side. Roger and Fee might have, you know, wanted to try to pay attention to how can we get a hit song. Bill Spooner was a, a, a whole in on a whole other left left field. Um, he was the founding member of the band, Bill Spooner, and he was musically the art the art director at the beginning, the music director in the beginning, and then it slowly evolved, you know, and everybody started to get, uh, you know, their own mindset about things. So, you know, it's, it's a problem when you work on a band, a lot of different people, there's six, six musicians, and 
and um, our seven musicians, and <clears throat> things just started to break up, explode. Yes. Some people went one way in the eighties, and some people went the other way. Did you, when you were, when you were recording Love Bomb, which is the, 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 the album from 84, 85, produced by Paul, was that, did you feel tension when you were recording that album? Absolutely. And that was, that was the time that Fee said, I want to stick with Foster because Foster got us those hits and he had already decided that he wanted to go that direction and me particularly and Michael Cotton loved Todd Rundgren and loved his music and loved his production and his open mind and his artistic viewpoint about life. So yeah, there was a, that was a, a, a bad scene. Ashley Fee went to LA. I think he came back in a few times and sang his parts and kind of semi-reluctantly on some of that stuff. Uh, Bill Spooner was kind of in a weird um, state at that point, and uh, so yeah, it was it was it was a, it was a, a time of turmoil and, and change. And then after that record, Remote Control, we were touring a gigantic show based on uh, not Remote Control, uh, Love Bomb, based on all the, the stories and the songs that we did for that that album. And the record company had decided that that was it. They weren't going to, they weren't going to, that was capital at that point. They weren't going to support this tour. So we were, we were touring with like, you go to record stores or be not, wouldn't even have the record in the store. So that was kind of, by 85, 86, we played like, we played these gigantic places in 85 on that tour. Uh, And actually Todd Rundgren was opening for us. Utopia opened for us. Right. Yeah. Wow. Which was weird because he was saying, like, it's not really, it's a shared bill thing. We just are going on because we are so clean and streamlined and we don't have to deal with all those props and costumes and all that stuff. So we're going on first. (laughs) That's how that worked out. But, uh, and then after that, she went, moved to LA. We, uh, we were left with uh, trying to find a new singer, 86 to like 89, 90 were some pretty rough years, but we did do some, we, we never broke up. We continued playing music and touring. We did record a record genius of America. We had a new member named Gary Canberra and um, you know, what else? Yes. Yeah, it just, it just and then the 90s came along and, she came back. We still really haven't done any. We've done some live recordings, but we still really haven't done a, a proper studio album in 25, 25 years. Yeah. Almost 30 years. So we're working on one now. <laughs> it's, yeah, you got to do it, haven't you, really? Did you, I mean, you know, with a band called um, Like Chicago, they've just kind of kept going. You know, members have come, members have gone. They've just kept it going. <laughs> have you um, did you is there more of a perseverance with people in America and and bands because because normally you would have gone in 86 fuck it we're just going to break up just give up the ship well some people did like Michael Cotton in 86 he took off he went to New York to pursue his art directing career and losing him was a big part of for me the tubes really changing, you know. 
Yes. And we never, we never really got him back. However, he is making a documentary, and it has been for almost 10 years now, about the tubes. We just got to find somebody to produce it. So anybody out there in radio land or television land, we want to produce a documentary about the tubes. We're wide open. We've got our ears open. Just bring us the cash. Yes. Did, so when, when you've got rid of the 80s, which quite a lot of people prefer doing, musically did the 90s feel like um a fresh start for the band because you toured yeah. europe to, toured europe again and released the compilation and did various other bits and pieces yeah i, I yeah i think it did i mean i i, I loved a lot of the, the the music that was coming out of seattle and, and uh, new york the grunge the grunge scene I, I was very inspired by some of the stuff in the bay area like primus and uh, limbo maniacs um, you know, Jello by Biafra, uh, the Dead Kennedys, all that kind of stuff was was seemed very fresh to me at that point. And actually, the Dead Kennedys was a little earlier. And that's that's a, a side note. Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys, he said he was a white punk on dope, living out in the avenues, kind of where I live now in San Francisco, and was inspired by that song. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> to go off on his wild rants. Uh, that guy's a pet. I love him. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that, so, so the 90s scene was <clears throat> pretty amazing. And we, <clears throat> I suppose we, it might have affected some of the songwriting that we were trying to do at the time. But, uh, you know, then, then it just became like we were a band that you'd go out and play and people would say, you know, you, you're trying to play some of your new music. Well, can you play some of the old stuff? Like, uh, you know, what do you want from life, or boy crazy, or don't touch me there, or just anything they heard of. And then we started to, you know, after if we wanted to get work, we had to kind of do the the best of sort of show, and you, you start to feel like your art is being taken away from you a bit, just from the demand in order to be able to survive. Yes, difficult one. But then, I mean, and, and, and obviously being a survivor in rock and roll is quite something. You know, Vince, Vince committed suicide in, in the kind of 06 period, wasn't it? I mean, that, that must have been a horrendous shock for, for the members of the band. It was a very big shock, yeah. We, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't expect that at all, but he was going through, uh, I mean, yeah, he was going through a state of depression. He was taking some antidepressant drugs, and I think that... Uh, Somebody had told him uh, how to deal with those drugs, and he, he didn't. Uh, they, 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 I think the, the the drug, the designer drug, whatever it was, the antidepressant drug, you know, somehow killed that guy. I don't think that he would have. I don't think that he would have done what he did. But he was pretty depressed about the fact that uh, he got this great job, you know, and it was like the end of the it was the, the end of the eighties. Like I said, that period where. None of us really knew what we were doing in the tubes. People were doing some other things. Steve was gone. Vince and Bill uh, were you know, doing something, and me and Mike were working on things. So it, it just got it, it got out of hand, and then and then all of a sudden Vince got a call from Todd saying he wanted him in his band. So he goes, "Okay, I'll tour." So he toured with Todd. He played on, uh, uh, I think it was called Nearly Human. 
that Todd put out in the early 90s and then toured. And then the Grateful Dead lost their keyboard player and he got the call to come in and audition and he did and he got the job. And then his whole world expanded into this whole gigantic thing. Four or five years down the road, Jerry dies and Vince just, uh, he, he, he got so depressed. He fell in the state of depression and started taking these drugs. I just, I blame it on the drugs. Myself. Yeah. But a sad story, yeah. He was a real good friend of mine, very good friend of mine. I've known him since he was, we have known each other since the mid-60s. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's horrendous, really. Because before, just, just going back slightly, you mentioned the great um, Jefferson airplane, but you played with Jefferson Starship, who had a huge hit, I think, in the 80s, called Jane, didn't they? They did, yeah. Jane, yeah. That was written by David Freiberg, actually, but sang by the replacement singer from Marty Ballin, uh, Mickey Thomas. Yes. He, said, he sang that song. Ainsley Dunbar played on that, on that, on that track. Did it? I have to say, it's one of those, that particular song, I think the build-up and the first, like, 50 seconds is absolutely stunning. And you think, this is the best song I've ever heard. And then it yeah. just doesn't keep going. It sort of, like, fades out. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. Some kind of formula rock that, uh, yeah. Yes. But, yeah, I, I love that song. I, I, we played it up until the last time I played with those guys. Yes. David Schreiber is singing. Now. He's, he's the lead singer of the Deverson Starship. They still tour all over the place. I haven't played with them for the last five or six years, but uh, they got their old drummer, Donnie Baldwin, back. And so he's the drummer now. And uh, they got a new singer. Paul Cantner died, of course. Marty Ballin died recently. Um, so God rest their souls. They, they, brought, they brought some amazing... Um, music to San Francisco. Yes, and that did that feel quite surreal? Suddenly being in a band that had been such an influence in the sixties. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was inf influenced by yeah, the, the Crown Creation by Jefferson Airplane. Oh yes, incredible record. I mean, when we were living in Phoenix, that's when that record came out, and <clears throat> I had opportunity to move to San Francisco. We uh, we actually went over to the Jefferson Airplane house. It was called 2400 Fulton Street, old Victorian. And when we first moved to San Francisco in '69, and I uh, I got to meet Jack Cassidy at that point, and I was already a fan of his because he played on Voodoo Child, and that was one of my favorite. I mean, Jimi Hendrix is still my favorite all time. Yes. And Mitch Mitchell is my favorite all time drummer. Just like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. He's um, pretty wild. But um, but the other thing, which is quite interesting, you have played with a lot of other artists, haven't you, over the years? Well, yeah. I mean, I was kind of a session guy. Um, where do I start? You know. You, you got a list? I have got a, a list, list, actually. There is a lot of lists. I mean, are there any, because we, we can't go through them all, but are there any particular highlights and are there any particular disappointments? Because interestingly, I did an interview with the guitarist called Eric Bell, who was originally in, he played with Van Morrison, then played with um, Thin Lizzy. And then when that fell apart, he sort of ended up playing with Noel Redding for a very short time and said, Noel, 
was a complete nut job, really. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I do have another friend who was in, uh, in a band with Noel, and he's my neighbor. And he's actually dealing with Noel's estate right now. Which, uh, but he didn't tell me how nutty he was, but that's interesting. Yeah. I, mean, I just, I just love, I love the experience, man. Yeah, what happened? But yeah, as far as uh, other other bands I played with, you know, I I started playing sessions, like I said, back in the early seventies. Uh, I worked with uh, Brewer and Shipley. I worked with uh, Howard. I gotta call you back. Uh, I worked with Bruno and Shipley was probably the first session I did. And then I did that early journey stuff. And then I got the call from uh, Nicky Hopkins. And I came to Apple Studios and started recording his first solo album. Uh, Mick Jagger actually was, was signed on to produce it. Uh, Richard Perry was the engineer at the time. They both left early because <clears throat> they couldn't deal with Nicky's wife. And, but I was the drummer. He brought me over there, and it was uh, Ray Cooper on percussion, Mick Taylor on guitar, Claus Warman on, on bass, and George Harrison came in and out for a bunch of the songs, as did Chris Spedding, and um, who else? Anyway, there's a, a few other. Andy, Andy Frazier from Cream, I mean, from uh, Free. It was amazing. So I was just kid in the studio in Apple Studios with you know all this incredible energy from the things that have been done there in that studio, and uh, it was just amazing. So that was one of my early recording experiences. Then I just you know things started popping up. I I started playing with Chris Isaac here in, in San Francisco. I played on his first four albums. That was a whole another style of drumming and, and playing and dealing with producers and click tracks. <laughs> there was a click track in the 80s. Yeah. Um, then I got the call in the mid 80s to do, from Todd, to do Skylarking uh, with uh, XTC. Right. And how did you find working with XTC? Well, it was amazing because they had already started working with Todd. They had produced, you know, they had hired him to be the producer, but Andy, as everyone that knows Andy Partridge knows that he's his own producer. And so it's really hard to work with the clashing of the, yes. of the directors, basically. But it was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience for me, anyway. And we did it at the, the Tube Studio. We did my parts at the Tube Studio in San Francisco. So I felt at home. It was wonderful working with uh, Colin Molding and uh, Greg, Dave Gregory. And they're just amazing, amazing musicians. So that, that was a great experience. That was in the mid 80s. Then I worked with them again in the mid 90s, mid, mid to late 90s on their album, um, Apple Venus and Wasp Star. And, uh, you know, that was 17, 18 years later. They called me back for that. Those, those, those were amazing sessions we did at a place called Chipping Norton. Yeah. In the Cotswolds, it was an old boys' school, I think. Uh, lots of uh, lots of famous records had been recorded there, so that was a trip. I stayed there for a month, recording every day with Andy, just with a acoustic guitar or something. You know, I would 
I had heard the demos that he had done, but um, that was an interesting project. Yes, I would imagine. Because yeah. uh, yeah. I, I was going to just say the other thing which is quite extraordinary about you is that you you're you're also a graphic designer and artist, aren't you? And you've done lots of stage designs and also album covers as well. So that's that's quite something for a musician to have that ability to sort of draw on as well. Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of musicians uh, that I've actually gotten to, to realize later were you know dabbled in art. I don't know to what extent, but yeah, it's, you know, it's a good combination, art and music and. Like I say, that our our love for that came early on with you know big productions and or even small productions back in the in the late sixties and the things that we were interested in the psychedelic artwork that was we loved so much like the, the Fillmore posters and you know the psychedelic posters of the day done by these great artists like Stanley Mouse and Victor Moscoso and I went to the Art Institute in San Francisco as well as Michael Totten did. 69 to 72 and our teachers were some of these poster artists so they taught us the appreciation for that kind of art you know commercial art but in the psychedelic end of that and uh, yeah inspiring just all, all inspiring music yes. and art together well, absolutely but all just lastly i mean you you also do stage design and it's not just for any old you know like random artists you've worked with you know Michael Jackson, haven't you, and Shania Twain, and you've done Vegas as well, the uh, Caesar's Palace Vegas, which I have to I have to confess, I have been to Vegas a lot because of kind of a, as you know, if you travel, Vegas is actually quite a place, quite a cheap place to stay in an amazingly good hotel, isn't it? And then you see all these Cirque du Soleil shows, which is the pretty. Bellagio. Pardon. Bellagio. Bellagio. <laughs> I like. I go for the win and encore because I don't know. We just don't get that sort of thing in the UK. But how did you... Okay, so can I just interject for a second? The Wind, you're talking about art project and stage design. So Michael Cotton, uh, of our partnership, we, we've worked together in many, many, many years and many different versions of painting murals, uh, doing department store, you know, enhancements, paintings, uh, sets for department stores. Got into set design for bands, Bette Midler, I mean, all these different kinds of things. But Las Vegas uh, attracted Michael Cotton, and he continues, uh, you know, that's his main thing. He, he designs, he art directs. Uh, well, the example I'm trying to give you is if you stayed at the wind, there was a show of these balls floating around on the water. Did you see yes. that show? Yes. Uh, Michael Cotton. That was Michael Cotton. Yeah, the Lake of Dreams. So that anyway, that they would do a lot of stuff in Las Vegas like that, working for a hotel. Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn. Good old Steve. Yes. But look, so look, you you know, what's it like to work with, say, Michael Jackson or putting a show on for Shania Twain at Caesar's Palace? Oh, what's it like? Yes. <laughs> you deal with a, you know five other people that are trying to communicate what the artist wants. If you could actually get a word in what, that's why it's with the actual artist like Michael Jackson. He'll give you some idea, he gave us some great ideas and we would do 
renderings, we would do proposals, we would do little short video clips, animation, all kinds of things in order to get <clears throat> the thing. And, and the choreographer as well, which was Kenny Ortega, and he was the, started with the two. He's actually the one that introduced us to, you know, got us in, involved with Michael Jackson. If you've seen the film, uh, <clears throat> this is it. That was the, the documentary made after Michael Jot died, but Michael Cotton was pretty much the guy that had been filming those, was hired to do the art directing for that tour through Kenny Ortega, who was the choreographer and director of the show. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, it, it says a lot about, uh, you know, how, how to deal with a, a, well, a temperamental artist like that, but also just the things that are involved, which are yes. massive, you know. That middler, same thing. Shania Twain, same thing. It's just like, if they have a vision and they want to see something that they can hire you to do, and it'll come out and the way they see it. So, yes. There's a lot of psychology going on. There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> it's just a lot of things. And then, you know, and all their assistants and the managers and the things that everybody has to throw in their two cents. So it's tricky. And okay, so lastly, I, then I don't do it as much as I don't do it as much as I used to, but Michael Cotton carries, carries the torch. And every now and then he'll ask me to come in and, and help him with the project. And okay, not quite the last thing, but you mentioned at the beginning, you know, your first band or one of your first band's journey, and you were just telling telling me they keep sort of sacking their drummers. I mean, as a musician, how do you how do you sort of cope with those kind of constant changes? Uh, sacking the drummers, well, um, I mean, I guess it's the drummers, the drummers locked, you know, it's just all it is is just a a marching guy with a sealed snare drum and can be replaced or it can be added to by hundreds of other drummers. I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just all personality. You know, it's just a personality crisis. Talk about the, the New York Dolls. Yes, but the, but Journey... ruin your career. But Journey... I mean, in the last five years, have had so many kind of disputes amongst themselves and so much money yeah. within it. That must just that must just look like a nightmare to you on the outside. It does. I wouldn't want to be in that at, at all, you know. And yeah, you know, a couple of times, Ross. Well, I have a I have a, a different relationship with Ross Valerie, the bass player. He and I have always had sort of a, a an outside look at. at his band, he is he is stuck in there since the very beginning, and he just recently got fired, along with Steve Smith, who was brought in again after the last drummer they had for a bunch of years was, you know, found doing something weird, and so they they kicked him out, they fired him. But um, I just thought that that was a very very strange thing. I haven't talked with Neil Sean or anybody else in that camp. Um, about what happened other than what Ross told me and he has not really let me know exactly how it all came down but I was very surprised that an original member of Journey could be fired I can't imagine yeah. especially, knowing, especially knowing that guy and then the drumming the whole drumming thing is like why didn't they call me I don't know <laughs> would, <laughs> I you, would you jump in if they asked you 
Well, I would, I would probably go down and play with him and see how it works. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't yeah. mind that good paycheck. But then again, I also don't want the drama. So I think it's probably, yeah, it probably would, I probably wouldn't have done that. Yes. But I know that Michael Walden is a wonderful man, a wonderful drummer, a wonderful producer. So God bless him. I'm glad they got him. And he lives out there with those other two guys in Germany. He lives in Marin County. So they're all, you know, they're kind of, I'm a city boy, San Francisco. It's a completely different world here than it is in Marin County. Yes. It's murky, isn't it? It's murky. So look, what would you say to, what would you like to have said to your 18-year-old self that was starting out on your musical journey? If, if, if you could have just said a couple of bullet points to, the, to your younger self, like do this or don't do that, or, or, you know, just watch out for this, but have a good time, what would it be? Um, have a good time all the time. <laughs> Martin. Quote from, a quote from Viv Savage. Now, um, I would just say, and I just got to play with that guy recently. Excellent. Yeah, and he said that to me. I, I said, what do you got to say, man? And he goes, have a good time all the time. <laughs> but, I mean, really, that was kind of our philosophy at the time, for sure. Just have a good time and try to be as creative as you can be and be honest with yourself and with your music and, you know, don't squelch inspiration. Be inspired by the things that are going around musically or politically or anything. I mean, just enjoy life and enjoy music and realize that music is most really one of the most important things for a human soul that if you could spread that that love for music and <clears throat> compassion to other people throughout the world i think that's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to to do that and, so and i'm very I'm very happy and are you amazed how you managed to navigate decades of kind of being a in a band <laughs> with with all the kind of you know the sex drugs rock and roll did you did you think wow i've done pretty good oh i do i do i do i wish i had a lot more money but then again what would i do with it this is true i travel the world but i love i travel the world anyway i just got back from morocco with michael cotton we had an incredible trip there we played got to play with the master musicians of jajuka that brian jones did back in the 60s yes and they're still talking about Brian Jones. That must have been Jones. amazing. It was amazing. We went up in the mountains with one of the original um, Moroccan guys who was friends with the father of the man who now is the lead musician. So he hooked it up so that he, we, we went up and we got to play. I got to play drums with them and they performed for us in their little their little clubhouse up on the top of the mountain in Morocco. It was, it was unbelievable. Was that kind of your spiritual, one of your spiritual highs? It definitely was, yeah. And um, that, was just, that was just two months ago in February. Well, yeah. it's lucky you got back. I did. I just got it. I, and Michael Cotton is still stuck in Morocco. <laughs> you, can't, you can't leave. I talked to him yesterday. He goes, they don't even have any idea when the airports are going to open. And, uh, Fucking hell. I know. No, it's crazy. He must be going on. He must... I'm supposed to go on tour with Todd. I just heard from the manager 
they said now January, they're going to try to reschedule this tour for January. But I mean, even January seems like it might not be uh, early enough. Yes, or late enough. Uh, late enough. Yeah, it's tricky. Well, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. And when I put this out, Nice to meet you, David. Yeah, take care. And um, I hope you... Have we ever met before? Have no. we ever met before? We yeah, haven't. Okay. But, um, right. I remember seeing you on the tube with, you know... <laughs> That's funny. All right. Well, uh, and I just saw Squeeze recently. Uh, just, it, was, it wasn't Jules, but it was uh, Glenn and uh, Chris. And I thought they were so brilliant. They were so good. Yes. They just started a gigantic U.S. tour opening for Hall and Oates uh, right, before this, right before this came down, and then they had, they had to can the whole thing. So we'll see if that that rises its head up again. You know? Yeah. Anyway, look. Anyway, give my love, give my love to the the British, the U.K. I love I love uh, I love Great Britain, and uh, do you live in London? Norwich. Norwich. Okay. Have you ever played in Norwich? I think so, yeah. UEA, yeah. the university. You must yeah. have done. You played so many places. Yeah, yeah. Have you managed to document all your, you know, gigs? Yeah. Um, you know who does that? Uh, a couple of our uh, our ex-roadies. They have one guy named uh, Michael Lahaney, and he is he is the archivist of all time. I mean, he still writes me these notes saying, like, you remember this one gig in 1976 where we did this? Uh, and I say, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I send him a little, great, I, I've been looking for that one bit of information. Anyway, he's great. He was one of our lighting guys in the 70s, and uh, he lives in uh, Newcastle. Oh, okay. Nice. Better be done. Right, look. You better Bye, David. See you later. And so how, how I see this? Is this uh, something well, you can I, I can send you a link to the, um, well, I'll, I'll make sure I'll archive and podcast it. So I'll send you a link okay. and you can always put it wherever you want to put it. Great. Okay, right, then. Terrific. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. An emotional farewell. That was me in conversation with Prairie Prince, drummer of uh, the American band The Tubes, but also one-time member of Jefferson Starship, Starship, and also Chris Isaacs. I don't know, I'm not going to read out all those bands. He was in loads. Um, if you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show, I will be here. And also um, all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. So do check them out. It's fascinating, isn't it? Anyway, look, stay safe. Have a great week. This has been David Eastall.